Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 151 with Hans Hagemann. Hans brought some great science and practical research to bear. So you'll learn one, the three chemical DNA of peak performance, two, three simple steps to flow, and three, the benefits of intuitive decision-making in a team. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items referenced here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep151. So here's Hans's story. Hans W. Hagemann, PhD, is a managing partner and co-founder at the global leadership consultancy firm Munich Leadership Group. And he is a global expert on leadership and innovation who has led seminars, coaching sessions, and in-depth workshops with top executives in more than 40 countries. Here's Hans. Hans, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me in your show. Oh, it is so good to have you. And thank you, especially it is 10.30 p.m. as we're talking in Munich time for you. And so much appreciated. Tell me, do you do a lot of these late calls? Well, unfortunately, we have the time difference between the U.S. and Germany. And sometimes it's even nine hours when I talk to the West Coast. But in this time, it's perfectly for me. 10.30 is a good time for me. I'm not so much sleeping already. And I try to keep me awake with lots of coffee, which is a very traditional way of doing it. And on the other hand, I think there's enough kind of adrenaline in my system that I stay awake. Okay. Well, I hope that there's adrenaline for this call. You're fired up. I was wondering if you had any <laughs> neuroscience secrets for managing late nights or it's just coffee is what you're working with. I think in the end, coffee is not so bad. The other <laughs> thing is if you feel under aroused, you can imagine something really scary and then it helps you most of the time. <laughs> so maybe you have a very difficult discussion with your boss the next day or some client is supposed to yell at you or something like that, which of course in reality never happens. But sometimes it's enough if you imagine these things and then you are really, really awake. I see. Now, do you have a go-to these days or is that too personal? <laughs> no, I think this doesn't happen to me and I'm very fine. And I think the coffee dose is very sufficient. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Well, I have so many questions about your book, The Leading Brain. And so could you maybe give us a little bit of a backstory in terms of what was behind the desire, the reasoning and the big idea behind this book? Well, actually, our clients forced us to write this book, I must say, because okay. we uh, started some trainings. We are in the leadership development area. And uh, when we did some programs and we tried to put something neuroscientific into it more and more every time, that was of lots of interest from the client. Because most of these people, they are scientists, they are technical engineers, and of course, they want to know facts. They don't want to hear something of an esoteric kind of psychology behind these things. And I assume that this is the case or something like this. No, they wanted to have hard facts. And we found lots of facts in the neuroscientific world. And the more they heard from us about it, the more they said, well, is there some kind of literature that you can recommend? And then, of course, there's a lot of literature, but there are two kinds of literature, as we found out. One type of books seems to be very, very scientific. So what you find in these books are studies over studies, and you find lots of scientific data. 
And of course, an executive who has lots of other things to do is very quickly bored by this, or he or she simply doesn't understand it. And then you have the other kind of books that we called black box approaches. And that was kind of funny to us. We both are educated psychologists and neuroscientists. So what we found out is that many books try to jump on a train, which you can see here, and try to just put some stories together and try to sell it as deeply neuroscientifically proven. And actually, we had some calls with some of these authors because in the beginning, we thought that's a nice idea to collaborate or learn from their expertise. But very quickly, we found out that there's not so much deep insight on the neuroscientific side there. So then we were forced to write exactly this book. And we think it's a good combination from deep neuroscientific insights, absolutely combined with pragmatic knowledge or translated into pragmatic knowledge for executives. And that was the basic intention. Oh, well, you've got me so excited then because it sounds like there may be some myths debunked along the way and you've yeah. got that blend, which makes for some of my favorite reading. So I just want to jump right to the parts I was most intrigued. So could you start by sharing when it comes to the neuroscience, what are the research insights that can be readily applied so that we can increase the odds that we're going to get in sort of that zone, that flow state and stay there longer and more often? Yeah, I think that's a particularly interesting topic because most people want to try to reach their zone of peak performance. And of course, they have experienced it from time to time, hopefully at least. There are still some people in business who have not experienced it. And of course, we wanted to find out what are the ingredients from a neuroscientific point of view. What are the transmitter substances that play a major role when you reach peak performance? And actually, if you see... From a perspective of an executive, and also you, PD, you will have experienced that several times, sometimes you are kind of under-aroused, and while you are under-aroused, you hardly can achieve peak performance. And then it's possible to create peak performance. And when we talk about peak performance here in this context, we are talking about mental peak performance. We are not talking about bodily peak performance or okay. muscle peak performance. That's a different story, and you need different ingredients for that. But mental peak performance. And then if you follow on the arousal curve, that means if you get more and more, let's say, excited in a way, in a neutral way, if you're a system is if you feel stress in a way, then of course you are over aroused and then peak performance is not possible. And so we try to find out what are the transmitter substances that are relevant here. And actually there are three, three transmitter substances and we call it, that's the reason why we call it the DNA of peak performance. And first the D stands for dopamine. This is something that you definitely need and that you get if you're having fun, for example, mm -hmm. or if there's something which is new. To you, which is kind of, ah, this is something that attracts your attention in a way. And then the next thing is, and that's the interesting of the three maybe, it's noradrenaline. Noradrenaline is something that kicks in when you kind of feel a mild fear. Let's say the dose of noradrenaline <laughs> that you need, it's kind of a mild fear. That's the point. And many people don't know this. They think, ah, if I'm relaxed, if I sit back, if I drink a cup of tea, if I'm really, really listening to wonderful music, then I can easily reach my peak performance. But actually, that's not always true. You need to have kind of a challenge. And by the way, we found out that if you are slightly over-challenged, then it's the best way to get into your peak performance. But I can come back to that later. I will first try to describe the third transmitter that we need. And the third 
is acetylcholine. That is something that helps you to focus on things. So that is the third ingredient that you need to focus on things. And guess what? Babies have that. When they are focusing on things, you might have seen babies and observed babies when they are crawling around and when they find something, you can hardly drag them away from it. If they see, for example, a little pen or something like this, they can stare at this pen for a very long time and they examine this pen and they don't stop doing that as if it was the most interesting thing in the world. <laughs> and actually it is at that very moment for them. I could see the baby in my mind's eye with the fixed gaze and the open mouth like, oh. Yeah, that's how they do it. And that gives you a good observation. Then you can see, wow, this baby is totally focused on what he or she is doing. And actually, we are distracted these days. You know, we have all these distractions around us, so we have to get back to focus on things. So if these three things come together, dopamine, noadrenaline, and acetylcholine, then you can say you have reached the DNA of peak performance. Well, so that's so fascinating. And I think I've been there, you know, just recently, I was doing some coaching with some executives a bit more senior than normal mm -hmm. about a topic in some more depth than normal. And so, you know, it was, it was very achievable, but it was a mild fear, I think I would say. And sure enough, as I was preparing, I found myself in a deep focus zone for like, over two hours in terms wow. of, okay, here's the outline and here's the system and here's kind of the key piece that we're going to reference and here's sort of the follow-up pieces that I'll share if it goes in that direction so I could make the best use of this time. So all that stuff. And sure enough, I was right there as it's resonating. Okay, so that's what I should be doing in the moment or the characteristics of the work, but is there anything I could do to kind of kick it up a notch in terms of with my own mental approach or attitude or diet or exercise? Like, how do I get a whole bunch of dopamine, noradrenaline, and acetylcholine. It's depending on what is missing. Is the fun missing? So make it fun. Make it more fun even. You have so many meetings probably which are totally serious. Or you read stuff which is not really interesting for you. But make it fun for yourself. Imagine it in a different context, for example. Imagine what you read is happening to, I don't know, some enemy of yours or something, that you have fun by reading it. That makes it stick and more interesting for you by far. And if it is, for example, the uh, noadrenaline, if you are bored by what you are doing there, and very often that happens, then you can try to add some excitement to it. Imagine that you have to do a presentation the next day to your boss exactly on this topic. Or you can imagine that your client, you have heard that your client is absolutely interested in what you are doing there right now. So maybe that gives you the extra kick, you no know, adrenaline, because that makes you think about, wow, what can I do in order to get that client going again? Or what can I do in order to get a, a bigger order from this client? Or what can I do to have an exciting presentation to my client? It's all about your imagination in that very situation. Or you might, if you can take it to a different level also, if you want to have more emotion in it, you can even think about impressing a woman with it or impressing some person which you really love, where you say, wow, that would be great if I could attract this person, but I have to do it a little bit different to do that. So that would be something. And sharpen the focus. This is also very important. Very often you have all these distractions. Your phone is ringing and there is, maybe you are checking emails in between because you're getting bored. Don't do that. Shut off your cell phone. And when I say shut off, I'm not telling about putting it on mute. What I mean is really shut it off because that's a difference for your brain. 
if it is on mute, it still can flash or it can ring or move or can mm -hmm. give you a message or something like this. But if it's switched off, your brain has got the order, oh, wait a minute, nothing can happen with the cell phone. Everything is okay. Intriguing. And so a number of those pieces then, when it comes to the dopamine and noradrenaline, was your kind of manipulating those variables simply by imagining something. And so yes. can you share maybe a study or a research insight that says that that really does something? I mean, some might say, well, hey, I'm just dreaming it up. Does that really have an effect? Oh, there are some studies which even prove that your muscles are growing just by observing people who are doing their workouts. Oh, that sounds which easy. Is, which is, which, <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing. It demonstrates what our imagination can do. And I think there are some studies which we point out in the book, especially on these effects. And the imagination is something that you can use for very many things. But there's one thing you have to be careful about, and that is... If you imagine, for example, to be a superstar, that's very often this kind of positive thinking that people try to sell, this, you know, this whole idea of fake it until you can make it. That does not always work. There are studies that say that if you are not really believing in it, then it doesn't work and it does exactly the opposite. So if you don't believe that you are ready to be a superstar in a few uh, months, but you are telling yourself all the time that you will, which also fosters your imagination about this, it gives it a wrong spin. It leads to a point where you, in the end, increase the difference between reality and that what you really perceive in a way that the chance that you will fail is even higher than, uh, if you, than to succeed or even stay on the same level. And those are interesting things. That is interesting. And I'm wondering, so maybe let's take an example. Let's just imagine that what is called for in the next hour or two of time and life is handling a ton of emails inside an inbox. And so, you know, that's probably not particularly fun or fearful. And some folks may very well want to escape it in terms of entertaining Facebook or some other distraction. So yeah. sort of putting these tools to work, if that's what I needed, if I want to enter the zone, the flow state of email dominance, what would you do? <laughs> well, I, I think it's very difficult to get in a flow state by checking your emails. At least for me, that's uh -huh. pretty difficult. And for most of the clients I work with as well, because most of these emails are creating, I wouldn't say problems, but come up with extra work, come up with negative things, come up with problems. So in most of these inboxes, you have lots of negative surprises and it's hard to get into flow. If you really talk about flow, if we want to get into a flow state, which, by the way, creates five times higher productivity, mm -hmm. as a study by McKinsey has shown. Then you need three things, and this is very interesting. The first thing you need is a well-defined goal, and that here again we are at the asset core line. Okay, it's that well-defined goal that we need. So the best thing you can do visualize things. That means, for example, if you are working on a present, let's say you are working on a presentation, which comes maybe close to the mail checking sometimes, but actually you can determine much more. It's you you are writing the presentation, and you can determine what's happening there. So. Imagine you think about, well, I will do some slides on our successes. That is not catchy at all. This is something which is not clear. It's not a clear goal. It's not a well-defined goal. It's something that you might have in the end. But this is nothing that in any way creates an acetylcholine burst or something like this. So instead of that, be more precise and says, 
hey, I want to have two slides which compare our service to the best competitor. Okay. And make it specific. And then you can imagine, ah, that makes sense. Okay, let's see. I have some ideas what that will be. And that creates more focus in that moment. So you can visualize and you have this well-defined goal. Now, the second thing that you need, you need an optimal challenge. And here we are back again to our noradrenaline because the optimal challenge means you need to be just slightly over-challenged, as we said before. And that means instead of saying, we want it sometime next month, for example, it's enough if I have it in two weeks' time, have a really clear timeline. Have a clear timeline and say, by the end of tomorrow, I will have these two slides done. So that is the second thing that you need, a clear timeline. That helps a lot. And then the third thing, you need dopamine, of course. We talked about that. That's the novelty. You need something that really gives you a burst of dopamine. And that is gotten by clear, immediate feedback. So very often you are working on that presentation and you get no clear, immediate feedback. It's something you say, well, I'm not really satisfied. <laughs> and let's imagine you say, okay, it's sufficient. Or your superior tells you, come back with the end result in two weeks. There's no feedback in between. You need feedback in between which is absolutely clear. So for example, you can say, hey, there are three milestones that I want to reach. I want to have the structure. I want to have slide one done and I want to have slide two done. And that is something which means I have a clear feedback for all these stages. So again, these three things that we need, we need acetylcholine to visualize something. We need the noradrenaline to have this little fear to be slightly overchallenged, And we need dopamine in order to really get things going and get the motivation going. And now the interesting thing is, if you see how video games, I have three kids, three boys. They are 14, 12, and 10 years old. And these boys are constantly playing video games. And actually, what are they doing there? You can't hardly get them away from their uh, smartphones where they are playing or their iPads. Now, what these guys are doing is they are exactly in a flow induced by these three things. The video gamers know exactly what to do. First of all, they have a well-defined goal because they want to reach the next level. This is something that they want to do, and all these games are kind of in this way. Then the optimal challenge means, uh -huh, you need to shoot, I don't know, two or three enemies and hit them exactly in this and this place in order to have enough credits to reach the next level. And then you get clear, immediate feedback. You know, all these noises, ding, 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 bang, bang, bang. <laughs> Every time they do something, they get a clear, immediate feedback. And so it is no wonder that they are totally in a flow situation. And if we simply think about these things and apply them more to our workplaces, I think we are doing a great job in engaging our employees by doing so. That is something really, really fascinating if you see that in action. Oh, that is fascinating. It's true how, sure enough, I think just earlier I was visualizing a slide about this podcast listener audience and comparing yes. it to <laughs> the typical podcast listener audience. By the way, it's higher income and more educated. So nice job, everybody, for being <laughs> such winners. <laughs> and Very so, good. But because I was visualizing <laughs> that, it really yes. did kind of galvanize my focus and attention and enthusiasm for well, where can I find the typical podcast listener? Where would I find that? Oh, well, that's over in, in this study. And now let's see, oh, do those 
categories match up just right? Oh, not quite. They're slightly different buckets. Let me just, and so sure enough, you know, the time breezes by and it's yes. exciting when you come away with it. So you are slipping right into a flow state and mm-hmm. that's what we want. Absolutely. But of course, you cannot keep the flow all the time. That would be totally exhausting. Some people think, well, we can stay in the flow state. The target should be we should have as many flow states as possible and if possible, link them together and then that would be some kind of an eternal flow. This is pure nonsense, of course. The systems have to recreate. They have to recover, of course, and we need some downtime. And that's the magic between having enough sleep, having a good nutrition, having exercises, and then perform. This is something that many people forget. If you see a 100-meter sprinter, for example, how often will he reach his peak performance in his 100 meters? He does that maybe 20 times a season, but not more, or let's say 30 times a season. What does he do the rest of the time? He's preparing. He knows the rhythm. He's exactly aware of how he can introduce his flow state, what he needs to do in order to get there at the right point in time. And that's the magic. Find ways to create your flow state at any time you need it. That is the magic. Not try to increase the duration of the flow state. And by the way, there's another very interesting thing, pragmatically, how we use this. What we do is when we have teams... Remember when I explained the connection between arousal, so the magnitude of your arousal, with the mental high performance? If you imagine this as two axes and you have the axis which points to the sky is the axis that says this is the mental performance and the other, the horizontal axis, is the arousal axis. And then you would imagine on the left hand, you are close to a coma, there's Mm -hmm. no arousal. And then on the right end, you will have something like close to a heart attack. That would be the scale. Then most of the people have pretty much in the middle their flow state, as I explained. But the interesting thing is that we all have this inverted U function. You know, there's the point when you are overexcited and then, of course, the peak performance declines. Mm -hmm. But people have different locations on this horizontal axis. That means some of your team members might use less arousal in order to create their peak performance. Uh And then when others are even starting to get into their peak performance, they are totally stressed out. They are already in the zone where they are stressed, where they are not performing very well anymore. And now the interesting thing is when we do this with teams, working in high-performance environments, of course, in top organizations and top companies, when we do that, what do you think most people want to be? They want to be to the right. They want to be these people Mm -hmm. who you can wake up in the middle of the night and they're immediately there and they can be under high pressure and then they perform. This is something like a heroic idea of people in companies. And very often, if you see people at the top, this is exactly what got them there. They are people who can stand the heat, who can stand the pressure, and most of them even need the pressure in order to get the peak performance. Now, here's the catch. Those are people, by the way, sometimes it's a gene mutation that these people have. It's nothing scary, but uh, at least you can see it. We call it the sensation seekers. So those people totally to the right are the sensation seekers. So all the other team members might be spread over this axis. And sensation seekers are not sensitive to that. They think those people are losers. They are looking (laughs) to the left and say, what's happening? These people cannot stand the pressure. I don't want to work with these people. But here's the interesting thing. What do you think if you see the distribution of people? Where are the Nobel Prize winners? 
They are no. very often to the very left because those are people who are easily aroused, if you want so. Yeah. If there is a very small change in things that they observe, if you are a scientist, of course, you are looking, you are staring into some machine or something and you observe what's going to happen there. And you do this over two years or even three or more years. And you go to work every morning at eight o'clock and you go home at five o'clock and you have stared into this machine and you have seen, <laughs> you have seen patterns of prints which are totally boring for sensation seekers. But you need these people in order to find out, wow, this is kind of a high performance when you discover something really new. And to give you an easy example, if you are close to a heart surgery, what kind of surgeon would you like to take? The one who tells you, ah, oh, wait a minute, this is my 200th surgery and I'm bored to death and I put you on the, how do you call it, on the surgery equipment yeah. the other <laughs> way around <laughs> and I put my blindfolds <laughs> on because then I get into my peak performance. Or the other one who says, wait a minute, we should be very careful. We will have four or five machines which work at the same time and they are super independent. And if one machine fails, the other one will take over. And if the second fails, the third will take over. And I tell you what, I take the fourth machine as well for you. So which would be the surgeon you want to have? Mm -hmm. And so that means all of a sudden they get a feeling, aha, those people who are very sensitive towards stress, for example, or towards sensations, towards feelings, towards arousal, all of a sudden they see, wait a minute, these people are very valuable in our team. Talking about diversity, we need these people. And very often we have an instrument that measures exactly where you are on this arousal curve. And that's an eye opener for teams because now they say, wait a minute, of course, I have totally misunderstood my colleagues so far. And also the people to the left say that on the people to the right. Because they think these are crazy idiots who totally exaggerate all the time and who are bringing them into danger. So there's a misunderstanding on both sides. Mm -hmm. And by knowing these things, people are developing a better understanding for each other. That's very helpful. Well, I think that is helpful. And I see that in my workshops frequently, if we're talking about Myers-Briggs or something, it's like we tend yes. to have an assumption that others are the way we are, or they should be the way we are. And then when you open up their eyes, like, oh no, folks are operating differently. And that can really be an asset in different contexts. It's pretty eye-opening. Absolutely. I also want to get your take then when it comes to these different levels of arousal and things, if you're feeling too stressed or not stressed enough, you talked about the imagination approach. Are there other strategies of what you call cognitive jujitsu to regulate our emotions upward or downward on the stress continuum or on any other dimension? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting and very relevant topic, by the way. It's about regulating emotions. That's very important. What we can see is that there's kind of a ban of emotions in the business world. So the only things that you can see is that people are screaming at each other, maybe. But very often... Other kinds of emotions like being angry or being sad or being all this spectrum of emotions is somehow not allowed. People think, oh, these are weak people who demonstrate emotions. But the magic behind this is if you don't confess the emotions, if you don't stand to your emotions, then, of course, you will inhibit your emotions. And that's the worst thing you can do. The emotions stem from a system which we call the limbic system. And that is a system which is not in your cognitive control. Those are things that happen. Imagine you are sitting in a meeting and somebody is saying something really stupid. Mm -hmm. Now, most people, what do you think how most people react? From my observation, people don't correspond. They sit there 
And then what happens is that they say, well, emotions are the wrong thing here right now. I have to stay calm. I have to stay rational. I have to stay cool. While they are doing that, they are in the process of inhibiting, which means they are fighting with their cognitive system, which is basically based in the prefrontal cortex, of course. Then they are fighting with their prefrontal cortex against the limbic system. This is a fight you will never win. You will have done it oftentimes, but the limbic system in the end is stronger. So a good technique to gain back control is labeling. Labeling what happens. Labeling means give the feeling that you have an expression and say it. Tell this other person what you say makes me angry. And by saying this, you are gaining back cognitive control because now your system is in line again. You are not working against something or trying to suppress something. Now, all of a sudden, your system is in line again and you have gained back cognitive control. And that helps you in order to stay on top of the situation. What you also can do, and that is the second thing that we absolutely highly recommend, is take a deep breath. So breathing is a very, very good technique. Breathe very slowly, inhale, and then take a little bit of time and slowly exhale. Now, is it in through the nose, out through the mouth, or is that irrelevant? Yeah, that's a good idea to do it that way. It helps, but that is not the decisive factor. The decisive okay. factor is that you take the air into your belly. And very often, I don't know how you've been educated. When I was a little kid, my parents always said, well, fill up your lungs with the air, with fresh air. And when you breathe, breathe it into your lungs and make your body have a good body posture, which led me to the point that I learned to breathe into my lungs. And of course, everyone breathes into their lungs. But the question is, what is your posture when you do it? And I always tried to make a good posture. And that means to make my muscles stronger when I'm breathing. You can just try it. Most of the executives do the same thing. Now, belly breathing is something where you are totally relaxed. And you breathe the air that you inhale into your belly. And you can really feel that your belly gets bigger when you do that. If you really want to relax, breathe into your belly. It's a very good thing. And then slowly breathe out. Slower than you have a breathe in. And you can practice that everywhere. We have a colleague who does that at traffic light stops. Mm -hmm. He used to be very annoyed when he had to stop at traffic lights because he said, oh my God, that takes my time. And he got even more stressed. And now he replaced it by a new habit, which gives him a lot of stress relief. And that's the inhaling, exhaling exercise. Mm. And that's fantastic if you want to reduce stress. Oh, that is good. Thank you. Well, there are so much stuff I want to talk about, but I want to be respectful of the time given it's later there. So maybe if we could go rapid fire and do a couple more tidbits, what should we know about habits, you know, forming them and keeping them going? Well, habits are a little bit difficult because habits, of course, stay very, very, very steadfast in your system. What you can do is you have all these New Year's resolutions. As you know, people try to find out habits. Yeah, I want to change habits. I want to do something. Actually, what we think there is a nice way of getting rid of habits and learning new habits, which is taking small steps. If there's one shot about habits, I would say don't exaggerate because you scare yourself. Most people say from tomorrow on, I don't drink beer anymore. Or from tomorrow on, and that is around New Year's Eve, of course, people say, I stop smoking. That's not a good idea because that takes away too much. Just do little steps. For example, if you want to create a habit that you run, then it's pretty much enough if you buy new running shoes the first day 
And on the second day, you just put the running shoes at the place in front of the door where you want to use them. And on the third day, you just try them on and walk a little bit. And on the fourth day, you start to move a little bit quicker. So don't try to run the marathon on the first day and then get disappointed and then get rid of and you're not motivated anymore for creating a new habit. Small steps are the most important things. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And you've also got some work on the unconscious mind and how we can actually sort of tap into some of the wisdom that we don't even know we have. How does that work? That's all about intuitive decision-making. I see a big future for intuitive decision-making. We all want to be very rational. And most of the decisions we try to do very rational. And that means we want to have all the facts and put everything together. Now, the interesting thing is, if you are an expert, and there are experiments about that and studies about that, if you are an expert, intuitive decision-making is better. What does that mean? The more information you get when you are an expert, the worse your decision gets. The more you do it intuitively, the better the decision is. Gerd Gigerenzer did a lot of great work on this. Now, the interesting thing is, of course, you acquire intuition over time, only by experience, only by let's say, doing things over and over and see the consequences of the things that happen. And after a while, those are automated processes and you don't have access to these processes anymore, but you know this is the right thing to do. And the problem that we have in practical situations in teams very often, because we all have these diverse teams these days, is that we have 57-year-old experts around the table plus let's say, 25-year-old Harvard people coming from the university, being very fresh, gaining experience. Now they are discussing a topic and the 57-year-old guy says, I know exactly how to do it. Let's do it this way. And then the 25-year-old looks at him and says, wait a minute, how do you know? And the interesting thing is then that the 57-year-old says, um, well, I simply know it. I did that over many years and this is the right thing to do. And as the nature of the intuitive decision is, he cannot explain how he does it. It's like data which have been zipped into a folder. And of course, there are mechanisms how you can get it, but you need the key for it. And very often, these people have lost the key, but they do the right thing. Now, the 25-year-old has the right to hear because he wants to learn. He doesn't want to take a wild guess. And he doesn't know how the person does that. What happens now is that the 25-year-old insists on knowing how do you do that. And the more he does that, the more he puts the 57-year-old under pressure. And the more he puts him under pressure, the more nonsense the 57-year-old will tell. But still, <laughs> the decision is better. And here's the thing. That leads to the point that the 25-year-old will be very, very polite, of course, but turns away and tells his colleagues, well, you know what? In our company, we have crazy people. They do things that cannot explain. They don't know what's happening, but they do their decisions. So what kind of a company is that here? And that's an interesting thing. We have seen that so often now. And by understanding the most important facts about intuitive decision-making, you can create much better decision-making in teams and in companies. Mm. Actually, that's a very good tip about getting back your intuition. Sometimes even if you are an intuitive decision-maker, if you are an expert on something, some people might have given you so much information that you are totally overloaded and flooded. And as we know, the decision gets worse. Then. So how do you deal with such a situation? John Schooler, our dear friend and colleague from Santa Barbara University, he has a great advice. He says, take a coin and determine which side would be which decision, and then flip the coin. And then 
have a look the moment the coin lands, have a look how the coin has decided. And the feeling that you get in that moment is the right decision. Oh, that's great. Like, oh, no, or yes. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> and that always works. If you have the feeling, oh, hmm, let's flip the coin another time, then you know, do the opposite of what the coin tells you. Okay, thank you. And a final thought here. You had a blog post mentioning there's a common behavior that mm -hmm. has been shown to decrease our IQ by as much as 15 points. Oh, yeah. What is that and what should we do instead? That's interesting. That's multitasking. And okay. that's another so interesting topic because everyone wants to multitask. And there are so many myths in the world about multitasking. But as a matter of fact, multitasking doesn't work. But now we have to have the right interpretation of multitasking. So what is multitasking? We are defining multitasking as doing two rational tasks at the same time. That is important because you have tasks that you can do not in your rational mind, not in your prefrontal cortex, but from your limbic system. And those things you can do together. Now, let's have an example. You can drive a car, for example. Most of these processes you do unconsciously. You have learned it once. And then, as I talked about the intuitive decision-making, you have zipped it somehow. And you do it automatically. If you drive to work, most probably nowadays you cannot say how many traffic lights you came across. And now remember your first driving lesson. I bet you can tell it was 12 traffic lights mm -hmm. and you can, you exactly know what happened at each of these traffic lights because you did it consciously. Now you do it more or less subconsciously. Now, while you are driving and all these processes are automated, they went to your limbic system, which means it gives you a lot of space for your cognition. It gives you a lot of space for your prefrontal cortex to do something. So it's pretty easy. I wouldn't say it's always possible because when we have very stressful talks, you cannot do it. But you can be on the phone, for example, while you are driving. But here you can see very often there are overlaps. You are driving a little bit worse. You are not so focused on the telephone call. This is difficult anyway. But those are two processes you can do that's possible. What is not possible is two processes at the same time from your prefrontal cortex. That doesn't work. There are so many studies that prove now that you need, there's the 50-50 rule if you want so, you need 50% more time and you make 50% more errors that you can say. That's mm -hmm. also very interesting. When you're multitasking as compared to single tasking? Absolutely. What the brain does, more. it switches back and forth. And of course, in between these switches, you need extra time to readjust to the task that you are doing. And the myth about multitasking stems from a completely different thing. It's about, let's say, having these two things the one thing from your limbic system and the one thing from your prefrontal cortex, that works. You can mm -hmm. iron if you are an expert in ironing and at the same time be on the phone or text or do some mails. That's possible. Mm. Well, this is such good stuff. Well, Hans, tell me, is there anything you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear quickly about some of your favorite things? I think if there was one tip for everyone, it would be stop multitasking and start focusing. I think that's all right. what's all about. Get more focused. We are so distracted. I can see that when I work with my clients, when I do my coachings, these people are totally overloaded with stuff. And then they decorate their desks in an improper way. They put too much stuff on their desk, which distracts them. They have their phones on all the time. So create some breaks. We call it the 20-minute rule that you focus on something for 20 minutes. Interesting enough, from our experience, many things that occur during the day, you can do in a 20-minute time window. If you focus on that, whatever that is, if it is kind of a scratching out, 
a presentation or something, you can do that easily in 20 minutes if you are totally focused. And then do a break, check your emails, and then switch it off again and do the next 20 minutes uh, thing. That's something that works. By the way, I have some interesting tip for those people who are interested in change. There's a great movie. It's an old movie, but it's great. If you really want to know the nature of change, and I mean, it is as if somebody would have written that who has a deep understanding of all these neuroscience. Get the movie Sister Act. Okay. You know, Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg. And I bet most of the listeners will have seen it already. But see it again and see it through the lens of a change manager who wants to implement change. Whoopi Goldberg is the perfect change manager. She does everything you need in the right order and in the right dose in order to create peak performance. That's excellent. We will see it with new eyes. Oh, that's fun. Thank you. <laughs> well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Actually, I'm not so much inspired by quotes. For me personally, art is something that inspires me very much. And I was last week in Los Angeles in Santa Monica, and I went to the Bergamot station, and there's an Andy Warhol exhibition right now. And I like to see how <laughs> the craziness that he provides. He bought a Rolls Royce, but he never owned a driver's license. So what happened is he was proud of his Rolls Royce. And what he did is he invited all his friends to drive him around. So everybody wanted to drive a <laughs> Rolls Royce at that time in the 70s. And they all were sitting behind the steering wheel of his Rolls Royce, but he never drove. And I like these crazy things. I like these crazy little stories. And they always inspire me very much. Interesting. <laughs> and could you share with us a favorite <laughs> researcher or study that seems to come up again and again in your mind? Definitely. I mean, the favorite study that comes to my mind is the recent Google study on uh, what makes team perform highest. So what are the things, the factors that create highest performance in teams? Because this is actually the area I'm absolutely interested in. I see so many teams underperforming. And what happened is they examined, it's the Aristotle study. They try to find out what are the factors that really create highest performance, what makes the difference between the teams here. And I mean, if there's a company that knows how to deal with data, that's probably Google. They tried to analyze everything, every single factor that might have an influence on highest performance in teams. And then in the end, they were kind of desperate because there was nearly nothing except for one thing that significantly was responsible for highest performance in teams. And that was psychological safety. Psychologically safe means they can say what they think is the right thing. They don't need to fear about some negative effects if they tell negative things to their superiors. They can be open about everything. They can speak out crazy ideas. All this demonstrates psychological safety. And now, the workplace reality that I see very often is that our companies are full of fear, full of people who are threatened in a way. And this is something that really creates lower performance, that really hinders us to create highest performance. And this is something I can see everywhere. So that is a study that I would recommend everyone to read. Mm. Yes, thank you. And how about a favorite book? I would say I have two favorite books, and they also have something to do with imagination. The one book... It's a German book, and it is uh, celebrities have been asked, and very successful people in their best years, let's say, have been asked, if you think back when you were 16, what advice would you give? So write a letter to yourself at the age of 16 from your perspective now. I like this playing with 
let's say, time and imagination and different states of beings. So it is an interesting book. It's full of wisdom because what happens is that 30 or 40 or even 50 or 60 years later, you write to yourself, seeing yourself as a 16-year-old person and all the wisdom that you have learned over the years and all the failures and all the mistakes that you did are in this letter. And reading these letters, is that's fantastic. I don't think it exists in English, unfortunately, but that's a great book. And the other book I really liked, I came across this book years ago. It's the UNICEF, which deals with children, of course. They have asked kids, small kids who have no clue how things work, what would you think? Draw a picture how this thing works. Explain it to us. And they showed them fridges and they showed them cars and planes and all these things. And then you can see how kids draw how these machines are working. And it's so full of inspiration because we are very often stuck to our way of seeing things. And kids are much more free. They can think out of the box much better than we can do that. We try to construct things from our experience very often. And here you can see pure innovational spirit. That is something that I like. Mm, thank you. And is there a favorite tool you have that helps you be awesome at your job, whether it's a product or service or app or something that you use often that makes a difference? I think I have a practice which helped me a lot over the last two or three years when I discovered that that boosts my productivity at least. I get up one hour earlier every morning. I used to get up at eight o'clock or something. Now I get up at 6.30 before my family even gets up to just have time in this quietness of the morning to get some things done. I don't check my mails. That's very important. I have something I work on. For example, I read a passage in a book which I wanted to read and I'm looking forward to that the evening before already. And then I have my quiet 60 minutes in the very morning because in the morning you can determine what happens. Once you have dived into the business life again, Many people are determining what's happening. You get phone calls, you get mails, you get distractions everywhere. But these 60 minutes in the morning, you can absolutely determine. And that's worth gold. And the other thing is, which links to that very much, I used to start my morning with checking my mails, I must say. The first thing in the morning, even before I went to the bathroom, I came across my phone and just had a quick glance at the mails that I have received. I don't do that anymore. This somehow distracts you so much. What I do is I enjoy sitting there with my family, having breakfast very early, if it is possible, taking kids to school and then check my mail because I'm much more focused and the family life is much better. Mm, excellent. Thank you. And would you say there's a particular nugget or articulation of your message that seems to really resonate with your clients or audiences? Definitely. It's what I can say is the DNA of peak performance. That's what we explained before. Once people understand that peak performance is only possible if you have these three transmitter substances, as we said, it helps them a lot. They much more focus on these three things and they are much more sensitive also for these uh, different stages of the arousal curve of others. And that helps very much in understanding other people. Okay. And Hans, is there an ideal place for folks to reach out or get to know more about what you're up to? Where would you point folks? There are two um, points of contact. The one thing is our company's website is munichleadership.com, munichleadership.com, pretty easy. And the other one, of course, is specifically for the book. It's theleadingbrain.com. And these two are full of information and links and all the information you need. 
And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, again, that's stop multitasking, start focusing. I'm pretty sure that this boosts your creativity. Okay. And maybe switch off your cell phones from time to time. I'm really serious with this. Switch it off. All right. Hans, <laughs> thank you so much for staying up late in Munich for us. This was a ton of fun, and I wish you lots of luck with your consulting practice and book and everything you're doing. Thank you so much, Pete. It was a pleasure for me, although it's very late here now, but uh, <laughs> again, a pleasure. <laughs> it was really great. I love the way Hans just broke it down. Fun, fear, and focus, that is what you need. And so you can just kind of see, okay, what's the missing ingredient right now? Oh, I don't have any fear whatsoever because I'm coasting right now. It's easy. Well, how can I make it a little spooky? Oh, I'm just going to pretend someone really wants it and they're up in my face about it. And so that can kick it up. Or maybe the focus is what's missing. So I'm going to conscientiously quit out the email program and whatnot. So I like that's a real quick checklist. I'm dragging. I'm not flowing. What do I do? Ah, take a look at my fun, fear, and focus. So once again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcripts or the links to items we reference here, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep151. If you want to try the new fun, join the Gold Nugget email list via text messaging. You can do so by texting the number 444-999, the message NUG. So you text NUG to three fours and three nines. I also hope you'll join us for our next episode. It's Diana Booher. She is talking about communicating like a leader, and she has really influenced the way I email all the time. So I hope to get you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 